Good morning, everyone. As Johnny said, I'm Amy. I'm married to Adam. He's currently downstairs in Kids Church um, with our four children. And we live in Carrington, just a little bit that way. Now, uh, Henrietta is doing slides for me. The first slide this morning is a picture of Rosa Parks. I'm going to start. Just a lot of you will know the story of Rosa Parks, but I'm just going to start um, by sharing a little of her story. So on the 1st of December, 1955, Rosa boarded the bus on the way home from work. She did this like she did every other day, and she sat on the front row of the black section of the bus, which was the back half of the bus. And the bus was particularly busy this day, so it started to fill up with people. And a white man got onto the bus and had nowhere to sit. And so the bus driver asked Rosa to stand up. He asked quite a few people to stand up, and some of them did. And Rosa said that uh, on this particular day, in her memoir later in her life, she said, a quiet determination came over her like a quilt on a dark night. And so she said no. And lots of people had been saying no to getting up on these buses. But Rosa in particular uh, said no with some vigor. <laughs> and she was arrested and taken away and bailed later that night by white friends and supporters, the Dewar family, who were um, aware of what had been going on in the area. And as she was being bailed, something was happening across the area of Alabama where she lived. People were gathering in churches across the area, and they decided that this was a moment, that Rosa was just the right person that they had been waiting for. And so little, uh, I don't know that Rosa would have known this, as she sat and waited to be released. But the next morning, she woke up for work, and along with her, 40,000 people across that region walked to work. And this is a picture of just some of them walking to work. 40,000 people. So they got themselves organized quickly. <laughs> and they continued to walk to work for over a year, some of them 20 miles to work. So on day 381, when the bus company just couldn't take it anymore, after dozens and dozens of buses had sat unused for this year, they uh, petitioned to the courts and um, segregated buses in that part of Alabama was deemed unconstitutional. And Rosa, this picture is actually a photo opportunity that the journalists came with her, and this is her sat next to a journalist. Rosa boarded a bus sat now next to a white man and traveled to work. And actual, the civil rights movement continued for another decade and lots and lots of other things happened. But in Montgomery, Alabama, the bus boycott led to the first step in removing segregation. In her memoir before her death, at the age of 92, Rosa said this, I would like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so other people could be free. Rosa's stand for justice on just that regular day didn't look like an act that would significantly impact the war of injustice raging around her. Assassinations, demonstrations and violence were all around. And yet, in this significant contribution to the war, she simply stayed sat down. A strange victory. 
but one we can see in retrospect. She was a soldier in a war, and she won her battle. Today, we're going to explore Jesus' victory on the cross. But like Rose's, his was a strange victory. We've been in a series looking at the cross. I don't know about you, but it's been hearty, hasn't it? Uh, Over the last few weeks. Last week, Mark looked at the topic of substitution. The idea that Jesus died in our place. We learned that Jesus doesn't save us from an angry God. Instead, the way Jesus takes our sin from us is to take it in to himself. Our sin becomes his. There is nowhere we can go where God won't pursue us with his love. This week, we are looking at the final description of the cross as we begin Holy Week and finally next Sunday, celebrate Easter together with baptisms, as Johnny and Amy have said. This week's description is known as Christus Victor. Christ is victorious. The idea that Jesus won a victory on the cross, a victory over sin, judgment, and death. But before we get into this, let's look at the passage that Ben read to us in Luke. Jesus and his disciples are arriving in Jerusalem. This is the journey that they have been making for so long. And they've finally arrived in the city they've been working their way to. This is a huge moment. As we said, it's the beginning of Holy Week. Jesus knows he is arriving in Jerusalem to die. And he's told his disciples this several times. But still, they see him arriving in Jerusalem to take over. They want to see an army marching on the city and Jesus sat on the throne, overthrowing the government, ruling and reigning in charge. Instead, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey. Tim Keller describes this entry to the city as almost comical. Imagine in your mind the battle scene of a movie, Braveheart or something like that. I feel like that ages me. There's been many, many battle movies since. The victor has weapon in hand, sitting on the back of a huge stallion. There's a vast army behind them shouting, maybe a flag or trumpets. This is the picture the disciples have had in their mind, but it's not the picture they get. Instead, their leader looks like he's riding along a Blackpool beach in August. (laughs) It's pathetic, it's confusing, it's childish, and they don't think it's good enough for Jesus. So they hype it up. They lay their cloaks on the ground. They wave palm leaves. They shout and praise and celebrate and point to Jesus for all they've seen him do. They're confused at this strange entry into this big city. This entrance into Jerusalem does fulfill a prophecy they would have known in Zechariah 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there are many mixed moments in this story. This Sunday is often called the triumphant entry 
or Palm Sunday, it's a happy scene to, to begin a difficult week, but it's a complicated scene too. There's a crowd gathered seemingly welcoming Jesus with open arms. They shout Hosanna as he fulfills this ancient prophecy. But we also see a donkey signifying peace, humility, and Jesus, as Johnny has said, weeping over the city he knows is so lost. He knows the people are looking for a celebrity king and that that isn't who he is. He knows that those who shout Hosanna at him now will soon be shouting to send him to the cross. If the disciples were confused at Jesus on a donkey, their confusion had only just begun. Just as he didn't arrive on the back of a stallion, he didn't end the week boldly sat on a throne. Instead, he hung limp, seemingly defeated, broken, and dead on a tree. And yet, he did win. His victory was more than any king sitting on any throne at any time in history. His victory made him the king of kings and the lord of lords. But it's a strange victory, a different kind of winning. Dietrich von Bonhoeffer says this, Jesus is no draftsman of political blueprints. He is the one who vanquished evil through suffering. It looked as though evil had triumphed on the cross, but the real victory belonged to Jesus. At times, I find myself questioning, like the disciples did, did he really win? Was the cross really enough? Couldn't he won a different way, a better way? a way that I would find easier to explain to friends and family around me. I find myself wanting to add hype to the story, to make Jesus more victorious more quickly, to make more of a show and something easier to communicate. But to understand what's going on here, I think we have to step back. The disciples so often got caught up in the now, like what was right in front of their nose, they wanted political victory now in their time. But what they and we have to understand is that there is a battle raging greater than we have seen in any newspaper. The forces of darkness are at war with the kingdom of light. We've been learning over these weeks about how dark and slippery and deep and often unseen sin is in our lives our systems, and our nations. This wasn't about one battle in one city. It was about the forces of darkness that run deeper and darker than we often want to recognize. This wasn't about just Jerusalem. It was a once and for all battle of love over evil. Palm Sunday, I think, is such a beautiful picture of what we think we need versus what we really deeply need. Jesus' whole life and ministry, from being born as a vulnerable baby, to eating with prostitutes, healing lepers, and the way he died, 
shows us over and over again that he was pushing back the kingdom of darkness with light in a subversive, upside-down kind of way. Jesus' character is consistently showing us the face and hands and heart of God. He didn't force the kingdom into being. His character didn't intimidate. He didn't fight. He didn't bully or control. He was consistently gentle, kind, generous, and merciful. And he was powerful. He brings light and the darkness can't hide. He brings healing and sickness can't stay. He brings fullness of life and death withers away. He told us to love our enemies. He turned the other cheek and ultimately he let the people who hated him nail him to a cross, praying for them as they did. The cross was a battle scene, but rather than being killed by darkness, Jesus took the darkness, sin, disappointment, despair, sadness, and shame, and he killed it with him on the cross. This was a battle of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. As our Colossians reading that Ben read to us says, he disarmed the powers of darkness and triumphed over them. As he hung there in pain, he was winning the battle for you and for me. Tim Keller explains this Colossians passage really well. He says this, Paul says here in Colossians, Jesus triumphed doubly. On the cross, Jesus destroyed the debt we owe God for our sins. This was the barrier between us and God, and it's been removed. But then, having disarmed the powers, Jesus made a public spectacle of their defeat. This points to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And, without stealing an Easter Sunday sermon... We know the end of the story, and we know the end of the story is good. I think it's sometimes so hard when we need victory in our lives to look to a man on a donkey, a wounded man hanging on a tree. Sometimes we want to dress him up as Braveheart, as a strong, battle-cry kind of leader, violent and dramatic and fast but that isn't who he is. The disciples couldn't make him into someone he wasn't, and neither can we. Our saviour is and was and will always be love. He died loving us, and he wins the battle for us in love. When I was preparing this, I was asking God what he wanted me to share from my own life. And I think it's this. I promise it relates, so hang in there. Um, anxiety, for me, has been a big thing in my life since I was little. And anxiety, for me, the best explanation that I've heard of anxiety is that it's like having someone stood behind you tapping on your shoulder. Someone who's pointing out your faults, your fears, 
and ultimately risks. I've tried to explain anxiety to lots of different people in my life. If you know my husband, Adam, he is the most relaxed man in any room. Even if he caters your wedding one day, he will be the most relaxed man in the room. Um, and I've tried to explain it to him because it's, you know, he's very kind and supportive, but it's very far from his experience of life. And the way I've explained it to him is that it's like this feeling in your stomach that there's something happening tomorrow, like an interview or something, and you're not prepared. So I would find it creeping up on me all different times. The children would be in the park, Adam would be on a climbing frame, I would be sat with my coffee, and I'd have a knot in my stomach, like something was happening later that day, and not really knowing what it was. But it would really, really, all through my life, I remember this feeling of someone saying, there's something you need to be thinking about. But not being able to grasp, what, what is it? What do I need to plan? What do I need to prepare? What do I need to fear? Like, it's that kind of feeling. I've tried many times in my own strength to overcome anxiety. Counseling was so incredibly helpful for me. Understanding the stages of a panic attack and knowing when they're coming have helped. But the tapping on my shoulder has always come back around in different ways. Until this one Sunday, a few months ago, here on a Sunday morning, I stood over there by the double doors, and I really was thick in an anxiety haze. You wouldn't have known it to look at me. I'm sure I was chirpier than normal, if anything. <laughs> but um, inside, I was watching the clock and thinking about a blanket and coffee and TV on a Sunday afternoon. That's what I was sort of heading for. And to be honest, I was bored of that feeling. That's how I would describe it. I was bored of it. And I cried out to God in my head, Lord, where are you in this? Where are you? I've often heard the voice of God being described as a thought you didn't think. And I find that really helpful because often when I have, like Amy was saying this morning, like the whisper of God, it's so easy to think, oh, was that, was that me? But so often I think the voice of God is a thought you just know you didn't think for yourself. And on that morning, his voice really was that for me. I cried out, God, where are you in all of this? And his reply was, deep breaths, dear girl. And that was it. It was so small, but so deep in me. I don't have waterproof mascara on, so it could get really messy. I'm sorry. Um, Johnny prayed for weeping, so... Uh, it might get that way. The voice of my father was reminding me that the battle for me, for my heart, for my mind, for my life, for everything I could fear in my future was won by him. All by him. And all I had to do was breathe it in. Breathe in his grace. Breathe in his approval over me. Breathe in his victory. I really do believe that on that morning, I found freedom from anxiety. As Amy says, we're onions, right? There's layers, there's layers, there's layers. And there might be more, and I'm so ready if there is more to go to God with that more. But in that moment, something changed for me. And in moments where I feel a knot in my stomach rising... I have a new strategy, and it seems silly, 
And when I was preparing this, it seems a bit like a man on a donkey. But it really has changed my life. When I feel that knot in my stomach forming, I simply whisper to myself, my children have actually caught me doing it, um, I am a daughter of the king. And I breathe. I've done it in supermarkets. I mean, Asda is the place, isn't it? I've done it in supermarkets. I've done it making dinner. I've done it in bed. I've done it in the shower. I've done it reading stories. All over my house, my life, I've whispered that to myself. I am a daughter of the king. I cannot save myself. You can't save yourself. We can't win our own wars. I can't rescue myself from my worries. I can't keep my family safe. But I am safe. Jesus took fear and anxiety and panic and shame with him on the cross. And it died with him. And because of Jesus... I can claim my place as his daughter. There is a place prepared for me at his table forever. John Wimber calls this being a citizen of two kingdoms. We are citizens of this earth and yet always citizens of heaven. My future and yours is safe and secure. Preaching the victory of Jesus is not preaching a message of everything in your life will be shiny because of him. That would be simple and would have taken a lot less time to prepare. <laughs> but Jesus didn't march into the city, take the throne, make his disciples generals and give them, I don't know, high-heeled wives and shiny houses. That isn't our savior. That's not who he is. The scriptures tell us victory means our security. In John 16, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Dane Ortland, in his beautiful book, Gentle and Lowly, says this. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest, wholeness, flourishing, shalom. In these moments, you see that in Christ, you truly are invincible. The verdict really is in. Nothing can touch you. He has made you his own and will never cast you out. Jesus' victory on the cross doesn't guarantee us a shiny life. But it does guarantee us a life safe in the knowledge that we belong to him. And that brings freedom John tells us that we have been given the right, through Jesus, to be children of God. His spirit lives in us, and the forces of darkness that damage us and tap on our shoulders cannot win us over. The battle between love and evil has been fought and won. Love wins and continues to win. Dallas Willard says this, 
Only when those who really do know that Jesus is the light of the world take their stand with him and fulfill their calling from him to be children of light will there be any realistic hope of stemming the tide of evil and showing the way out of that tide to those who really want out. Jesus doesn't need us to make him more of a king. He doesn't need us to dress him up, put him on a horse, dry his tears and give him a weapon. His victory strange and upside down as it was, was enough. He won once and for all. The powers of darkness will be over and over and over again, overcome by the children of light. Our response is to live in the victory, the safety, the security, and the childlike faith that says, I belong to the king. Where this morning do you need to shine the light of Jesus into your life? Where are you trying to win your own war? Where do you need to take some deep breaths and let him be the king? Like Rosa, we win by sitting down. Come, take heart. Sit at the feet of Jesus and let him win you in love. Amen.